welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, a podcast where we expand our pop culture horizons by exploring movies, movies, music, television, and books that are new to us. I'm Tessa. I'm Sam. And joining us today to talk about our February books for the Momble 2023 Reading Challenge is Matt. Hello. Can you believe we're almost done February 2023? Uh, don't remind me. It stresses me out. (laughs) (laughs) I remember like, you know, late high school, like early like university, um, like early 20s and like people telling me they'll be like, you know, as you get older, Matt, time will feel like it's flying by really fast and blah, blah, blah. And at the time I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever, old man is like what I was thinking in my head. I know what time <laughs> is. And it's like, I've been this year, I've been out of high school for 19 years. And I'm like, 20 years really goes by that fast. Like, wow. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking the other day about how like when I was really young, like like four or five, that years just seemed like incredibly large, like 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 the time between one Christmas and the next Christmas was just like an unfathomable amount of time to me. And now I'm just like, it's 2023. (laughs) What are the two worst contiguous months of the year? January and February. Boom, Tessa. Boom. You've Ugh. been outvoted once again. I don't team care. Team List and Team January, February are the shittiest months. Rule this place. I'm sorry. I have seasonal depression associated with summer. So July and August are the worst months. Thank I you. Like, you're such a, <laughs> like, did you push up your glasses when you said that, hipster? Uh, I took my glasses off, actually. <laughs> probably use them oh, so I could put them back depressing. on. Uh, There's no biological reason to feel that way. I do. <laughs> Because I'm cool. No, believe me, if if I could not do that, that would be great. Every summer, that's what happens. Okay, well, Matt, when we put this reading challenge together and I was trying to think of like where to plug people in, as soon as I read Sam's prompt for this, I was like, we have to have Matt on this episode, especially after you told us what you were reading yeah. for the February prompt. Sam, what was the February prompt? What did I do? Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> the February prompt was to read a book about films or filmmaking because this is the month where we do the majority or the lion's share or the cramming for the Academy Awards, which take place now in early March. Exactly. So it seemed appropriate. Well, and I feel like there's just like a ton of film awards. Like the the Academy Awards is obviously the like culminating the awards, show, so. but like, yeah, the rest, there's a lot of other things in like February and we March are, as well. We are recording this on BAFTA Day, which is streaming in America for, I think, the first time ever. So as soon as we're done recording this, we're going to go watch the BAFTAs to illustrate <laughs> your point. So, Matt, before we really dig into this challenge, I did want to step back because we've been talking to to other people about kind of like what their relationship with this challenge is, like what excites them or what terrifies them about reading challenges. What are your experiences with reading challenges in the past? Yeah, so historically, I, I generally struggle with like reading challenges or like book clubs. As an example, um, a couple of years ago, I thought I would be more engaged like socially with my coworkers. So I joined the uh, department book club and wasn't wasn't the best idea. They also picked books. I wasn't really into reading and the but anyways, um I like artificial deadlines when it comes to reading, um, having to have read something by a certain date kind of stresses me out. My kind of approach to reading for leisure is it's kind of like 
feast or famine. Like I read kind of in spurts where it's like, all I'm doing is reading. Cause I'm like, you know, into that book or, you know, it's like, Oh, I don't really feel like reading. I should read tonight. Okay. I'm tired. I won't read before bed. That sort of thing. I don't know if that's like a hyperfixation thing or whatever, but yeah, it's, it's really either I'm reading a lot or I'm not reading at all. And because I, do you go through those spurts? The idea of having this read by a certain date doesn't always work for me. It's it's probably like a big challenge to me. I, I try to like use my local library more and more like to avoid, you know, my to be read pile and buying books and stuff. But then I end up buying the book anyways, because I only get so far in the three weeks I can have the book and then you know, I'm still <laughs> read it. So. That completely makes sense to me. And I, I'm glad you brought up hyperfixation because that's how I feel about a lot of the books that I just go through. I am trying to do better about that. I think this challenge is helping me. But there are those times where it's like, okay, I am going to like just read everything by this author in a week. Like I just like it's so like fixated on it. So I completely understand that like problem with the rhythm of it. How has your experience been with this reading challenge so far? Yeah, so far, this, uh, especially the February one, worked well for me because I was already in the middle of reading a, a book on filmmaking, which I finished just before February. So I was going to, like, you know, speak to that in this podcast. But again, because it's feast or famine, I used the momentum from finishing that book to starting my next one right away, which was a little bit smaller, a little bit easier to read in terms of its its kind of prose and, and the way it was writing. So I managed to also read a book ar- around filmmaking and it actually fits quite nicely because it was dealing with a similar time period of film that had already been mentioned in the other book and kind of was able to zoom on that and, and similar themes topically. So, And I know that you are not the only one who read this book this month, so I'm very excited to talk about it with you. I do, however, before we get started, have uh, some updates what uh, what other folks have read this month. So Melissa says that she read Blood, Sweat, and Chrome for February, and she said it was the first book of its kind that she'd ever read, and she loved it. It's a favorite movie of hers. And What movie would that be, Tessa? Mad Max Fury Road. And a long, wild journey made for a really engaging read. Jack read also the same story. They said that it tells behind the scenes of the best action movie of the last 10 years, maybe this century, question mark. That's a very big claim, but I don't disagree with it. Maybe of all time was the other one. We can debate that another time. When I saw Fury Road the first time, it was one of the best theater experiences I ever had. Learning about how difficult it was to get to screen, I appreciate it even more. Kyle got most of every of the major players to talk about their time in the desert. If you love Fury Road or you want to know how difficult it can be to pull off a movie like this, you should read this book, which feels like a pretty good endorsement of it. And that's Kyle Buchanan, right? Who's yes. like a, the awards columnist for whatever big New York publication is at the Times or New Yorker or something to, to, to loop it back to Academy Awards conversation. I got you there. Be sure to tune in to next week's Monkey Off My Backlog episode where we talk about the 2023 Academy Awards, including what might also be the best action movie of the century, nominated for Best Picture, Top Gun, Maverick. (laughs) That'll be a fun debate we have later with Jack. Let's not do that. So... uh, The other book that that I received a message about was from Lozzie, who read Rebel Without a Crew by Robert Rodriguez. His story of how he made El Mariachi for $7,000, got a contract in Hollywood and won Sundance. A really interesting story showing just how close to the bone you can cut a production when you take charge of everything and are a broke student. 
You know how much I hate auteur theory, Lossie writes, but that film is as close to auteur as I suspect it's possible to be. Cut, it's it's what it's like cut, chopped, shot, cut, chopped. Like I can't remember exactly what he writes in the credits, but in of El Mariachi. And I Desperado is pretty much the same way. It's like Desperado is El Mariachi with more money and Antonio Banderas. Fair. It's literally it's like Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2. <laughs> I love sequels that are actually remakes with more yeah. money. It's very with interesting money. to me. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to save the other two people who who wrote in because they actually read the same book that you did, Matt. So I want to hear kind of your opinion first before I bring in other things. uh, By the way, I wrote this prompt so we could all read the book that we're about to talk about. Yet I did not read the book. Because, (laughs) Because to loop back to what you said earlier, Matt, like I did not want to buy this book, not because I didn't want to buy it, but because I didn't. I have lots of resources for books and I don't need to be buying books. I'm not, you know, like I just trying to be more conscious about it and all that. No library that I could get to had the book. So I got it via interlibrary loan from the university and it never came in. So I didn't read it. I wrote the prompt for this book so I could read it so we could talk about it. And I have not read it. There's always next February. You say. <laughs> you don't know there's going to be another February. This is like one of those things where it's like, you know, if, if we were closer, I would just, you know, mail you my copy that I got secondhand online. And it's got this cool cover because it's actually UK printing. But All right, Matt, I have two very important questions for you. Mm-hmm. The first question is, what book did you read? And would you like to introduce it for us? The second question is, did Ellie read this book with you? Yeah, no, Ellie is on the, the bed in here dozing because she was up late um she did not read it with me unfortunately not not really her thing not she doesn't have the same kind of fixation on you know new hollywood era filmmaking i was gonna say what's not her thing reading or new hollywood i was gonna say what kind of films does she enjoy then (laughs) i mean typically she like enjoys westerns because she likes to bark at horses or any sort of like Ah. dog movie um yeah, it's, I, I, de- I j- part of why I haven't actually seen The Power of Dog, speaking of Oscar movies, is because whenever I've had time to watch it, Ellie's always been around and there haven't been any other distractions and I just don't want to deal with, you know, the barking. Yeah, uh, when I my dog uh, used to hate Game of Thrones for the same reason. Like anytime there was oh. any kind of wolf sound, he yeah. would like go behind the television trying to find like where the wolves were in there and yeah. then he'd start howling. It was like a whole thing. So Ellie hears the first like three notes of the Game of Thrones theme and she will be anywhere else in the house and she will come down to the basement where the TV is running barking because she knows she associates the sound of the Game of Thrones theme with like the dire wolves and horses and dragons. Yeah. She's like, I can't tell if she's like excitedly barking or like Uh, trying to protect you. I was going to say, is she a Tyrion fan? Like a Khaleesi stan? Like what's happening? Yeah. What's the sitch? I think she hates everyone equally. <laughs> I know. And like, we tried to like train the barking out of her. So like when she stopped barking, that's where we would do like the reward with the treat, but she's outsmarted us and even barks more. Like they do that. if, if I'm having a snack or something in front of the TV, she will bark at things she wouldn't normally bark at. And then when she stops, she turns around like, Oh, you're going to give me some of that popcorn. Like, yeah. You know, so. <laughs> 
Yeah, this is this is the uh, this is one of the drawbacks of having a dog is that you have to be very careful about sounds in movies because they will sometimes set them off. Doorbells. That was the other one because my dog always thought someone was at the door. Yeah, so the primary book I read for this prompt is Easy Riders Raging Bulls, How the Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll Generation Saved Hollywood by Peter Biskind. And then my amendum, my uh, appendix bonus book was Shooting Midnight Cowboy, Art, Sex, Loneliness, Liberation, and the Making of a Dark Classic by Glenn Frankel. Do I have a new Hollywood fixation? Is water wet? Both. <laughs> so Easy Riders... Who would have known that you would pick this book? <laughs> Uh, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls surveys Hollywood, its personalities, insiders and outsiders from the late 60s until 1980, a period in which the studio system was in decline and talking about how that you know decline and that uncertainty allowed for a generation of American filmmakers, the first generation of, of American filmmakers to really kind of come of age with film, the first kind of class of, of film schools and things like that, and how they were able as outsiders to influence the insular culture of Hollywood and then therefore becoming the insiders kind of going forward and how that reflected you know the the cultural zeitgeist around kind of that had was starting to not be interested in what uh hollywood was producing each chapter of the book focuses on a singular film as the lens in which to examine both that film and its its contemporaries and kind of commentaries around that it's also about the friendships and the rivalries and everything in between it's also how i found out that a great party house in the early 70s was Margot Kidder and Jennifer Salt's place. Lots of people met there. I like good some good party. Hollywood goss. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, lot, lots of that in that book. And then my kind of additional add-on, we can spend most of the time talking about Easy Riders because it's the biggest, but Shooting Midnight Cowboy looks specifically at that film, and it chronicles not only the making and the release of the film and its its journey to to Oscar, but also the original novels author Leo James Hurley and director John Schlesinger, and a little bit on Waldo Salt, who was the blacklist era screenwriter who adapted it and is also jennifer salt's father it's all it's all Nepo, related baby yep 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 <laughs> what was your experience are you, are you a oh, nepo baby if your dad was blacklisted? was blacklisted i don't know i mean on the one hand no but on the other hand if you wait long enough it's like super nepo yeah Type well no nepo. it was like yeah. after once the blacklist was stupid Eventually, people who were blacklisted have been deified. Right. So, like, you're a demigod at that point. If you're, <laughs> you're not just a nepo baby. You see what I'm saying? A, a, a nepo demigod baby. Not to be confused with a nepo demisexual. That's different. <laughs> That's very different. That is very, very different. Ultimately, nothing excites me more than gossip of today's octogenarians when they were in their 20s. So, if, if you're into that, <laughs> The, both of these books Did are Did you see the Warren Beatty thing? The Dick Tracy thing? You have to look this up later. So Dick Tracy... Oh, I didn't know this. Dick Tracy owns... Dick Tracy owns the copyright to Warren Beatty. Let me start over. <laughs> Warren Beatty owns the... Speaking of octogenarians. Yeah. Owns the copyright to Dick Tracy. Yeah. Right? He's been trying to make that for a long time. I think it was just well, one of his hyperfixations. Have you seen the movie? 
it's on my list to be seen. I actually haven't. I, we really should do a monkey episode on like Warren Beatty or Dick Tracy or Madonna or something. Yeah. I saw that, you know, I was like 10 when that movie came out. So I, I love that movie, like unabashedly. That's when my, my friend Sean and I discovered Madonna because of Dick Tracy. But this is like the Fantastic Four thing. Warren Beatty has to keep making Dick Tracy stuff to keep the copyright. And so like he's done two specials, but apparently this one that he just did was a Turner Classic Movie special where he appeared as Dick Tracy talking with uh, the name of the TCM main host is escaping me now, Mankiewicz. And so like Dick Tracy, not, I'm, I'm doing War- it right this time, yeah. not Warren yeah. Beatty. Dick yeah. Tracy <laughs> is talking to Mankiewicz about the things oh that Warren Beatty, who directed and starred in Dick Tracy, <laughs> did oh wrong. And then, and then later on, Warren Beatty comes out to defend his film, Dick Tracy, from the criticisms that Dick Tracy <laughs> leveled at him earlier in the thing. And apparently, this is a masterpiece of nobody is comfortable doing what they're doing. <laughs> Thank you, Turner Classic Movies, for existing. Thank you, Ted Turner. Not for colorizing the classics, but for your classic movie network and for all the shenanigans we get up to, Robert Osborne would have never put up with this shit. Ted Turner, former romantic partner of Jane Fonda, who also appears in Easy Riders Raging Bulls. Nothing like a good transition. I, no, nothing, I nothing like a transition back. So I, I have to admit that New Hollywood is sort of a blind spot for me. I've seen Easy Riders. I've seen Midnight Cowboy. I've seen maybe like one or two other films, but it's just not something that I've invested a lot of time in. I've wanted to correct that. I know you have a box set that you want us to go through, Sam. The Ray Fulson and Friends box set? Yes. I have not seen Midnight Cowboy. Would I really we, want to see it. Would we say it. Head is New Hollywood? It's in the Ray Fulson box okay. set. It is yeah. very so much New Hollywood. I've seen yeah, Head. It's at the and start. I, yeah. And I love Head. Head is such a good movie. And, and by the um, way, what, what better way to talk about New Hollywood than Ray Fulson taking money from a major studio by putting the monkeys together, using that money to start making movies, the first of which is Head, in which he destroys the reputation of, of the, the group yeah. he made the money from in the first place. But but Head, I'm sorry, I know we're not here to talk about Head, but uh, do they talk about Head in the book at all? Yep, they do. I'm like, okay, good. Head is, Head is also co-written by Jack Nicholson, who was a middling actor at the time, kind and of unsuccessful. And directed, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, Rafelson directed Head. Nicholson co-wrote it with Rafelson, but then because of you know the the BBS and Rafelson and Friends kind of studio, which did Easy Riders and kind of was at the the vanguard of New Hollywood, that's what basically launched Nicholson into becoming Nicholson. I just love the Head soundtrack where you can hear them like. Like they're trying to get the monkeys are trying to get like their new theme right for the thing. Yeah. And and they're like, is that right? And you can hear Jack Nicholson in the background go, no, sillier. <laughs> and it's like one of the best moments in the soundtrack. Head, I think, is better if you've seen the monkeys because it is such a deconstruction of that. And honestly, yeah. according to legend, the monkeys actually wrote Head. Like they sat down and actually like recorded themselves coming up with ideas for the film. But then Nicholson and Rafelson yeah. got all the credit for it. Um, which is like par for the course for monkey's history. Anyway, again, we're not talking about head, but I do love it. So what 
about this book? Like, does this book cater to someone who's more familiar with this particular time period? Or would it be a good introduction book for someone like me who's maybe not as familiar with some of the themes and the connections? It's somewhere between a super casual read and like a textbook. So it it provides, I think, a really good kind of survey of like that period of Hollywood history. I think some of it in terms of it reference, like it, it picks like those eight kind of main films to kind of go through in each chapter is like a, a mini version or mini biography of that film. It does reference other films external to what it's talking about kind of offhandedly. So I think it's, it's definitely a good place to start, but I think it's also a good place to start in that you can have like your notepad or your letterbox, you know, want to watch list as something gets mentioned, you can add it to that to kind of come back to later. So I think it's, it's definitely good as like, you know, starting point to kind of both introduce you to film it's talking about, and then kind of to do your supplemental viewing or reading or engagement with the material after in terms of like the pros and how it's written. I think at times I found it not unnecessarily dense, but a little bit more dense. So it's like, again, it really fed into my my reading style of Feast or Famine, where it was kind of not the toughest book I've ever read. Like it's not Cormac McCarthy or anything by <laughs> by that in that standards. Um, but it's not. It's harder. It was harder for me to get into that that flow of reading it. And I think the main detraction that I would have about the book, or that I would kind of warn people about. It's about the 70s, written by Peter Biskind, who's like a, a culture critic, culture writer, in the in the 90s. So like some of his description of the the various personalities that are involved, I think are very male gazy and a little bit probably retrograde now to read. Like I think Biskind spends and I like part of it's probably the people he's he's quoting and you know interviewing and his source material as well but it definitely is of its time and I think there's more time spent to describing the physical appearance of some of the women in the story as opposed to the men like it does you know describe the attractiveness uh, or perceived attractiveness of the the men involved as well. But I, there are times when I was like, did you really need to like, did I really need to know that about that person that I just heard about? And, you know, things like that. So the, uh, the old, she walked boobily down the stairs type of uh type of prose. Not, not quite that, but it's not, not that right. Like, gotcha. it's like this director was really, you know, attracted to this person and you know, this descriptive words of you know this very oh what's what's the one there's one of the star wars authors uses a lot is is it is it stackpole but it's like slender or slither or like you know we don't need that much attention maybe no unless no, it's no, not no. that relevant yeah <sighs> it does it you know without having read the book again which i meant to you are really hitting on two things one of which is if this book were written today, it might perhaps not have that objectifying lens as much, although it might, because the second thing is, I don't know if you can talk about the 70s up in, you know, Southern California, in the canyons, mountains, whichever one you're at, without talking about aesthetic 
And I will point us to Daisy Jones and the Six. You know, that that is a attempt to capture that aesthetic. I you know, it's troubling because yeah, at some point it's very objectifying, but at the second at the same time, if you're not talking about those kinds of aesthetics, are you talking about the seventies? Yeah, I, I think that like the main what I would anticipate, or if I was like, you know, writing a piece on any of these movies um i like you can't ignore it i just Mm. think like it's it's worth and like i think to a certain degree you have to acknowledge it and at some point i think take it on face value otherwise whatever you're writing about is going to like be wildly tangential but i i think now like it would be a little bit more critical or at least allude to you know maybe some of the more aspects of of that that didn't age but yeah i i don't disagree like to a certain point it's it's like you have to acknowledge it but like you can't you can't ignore it because it's it's so like intrinsic to what what you're talking about right and like that goes too with the idea of like 70s drug culture like Mm -hmm. largely and stuff too and like how that it informed the personalities and then by default or downstream because it was such like a personality driven period in terms of like the films and and what they were about um that influences like the art too right like you don't get taxi driver if schrader and and scorsese aren't as coked up as they were right like you think about if anyone's seen taxi driver the, the ways in which um travis bickle lives in his apartment around that same period of time scorsese was living in a house and again he'd already had you know success at at this point, Mean Streets had come out and, you know, Alice doesn't live here anymore, et cetera, et cetera. But there was, like, nothing in his house, largely. He would be, like, you know, seventh floor, didn't have furniture. But, like, in his room, he had a giant crucifix over his bed that had a knife in it. That a knife Itchy. came out of yeah. the giant crucifix. That that just feels yeah. so, like, like it, it fits who, like, we know Scorsese to be as, like, you know, this, like, introspective Catholic. But, like, you think about your edgy 20s, like, Coke face was still having those, pre- pre- like, you know, those elements <laughs> of your personality that will go with you the rest of your life. It's like, I, yes, there's I something to unpack my, there. I think in my early twenties, Coke phase all the time. <laughs> it's actually more of an early twenties Mountain Dew phase. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> was, was Coe's red yet a thing when you were in your early twenties? Uh, it would have been, it would have just happened. Yes. You're the, the <laughs> vanguard of code red. <laughs> I well, I remember having it when it first came out. I have to this day never had another flavor of Mountain Dew besides OG flavor and Code Red. But I digress. No, no, no Baja Blast for you. No, not. I mean, I'll try it one day. I guess I don't know. <laughs> what do I have to lose at this point? We have talked lately not about Mountain Dew flavors, but we we had on Discord very recently a conversation about purity culture in Hollywood the the sexlessness of Hollywood films in the past in multiple decades at this point and it seems to me that the and and of course we've talked about erotic thrillers a time or two before (laughs) but it seems to me that you can draw a straight line from the stuff you were reading about to you know like the De Palma and Verhoeven pictures of the 80s and into the early 90s am i wrong no there's there's that direct correlation right because like along with you know the 
the breaking down or the ignoring of like the blacklist in, in the early 60s and everyone, you know, rightfully deciding that this was bad and they were over it. People stopped going to movies largely in the like mid to late 60s. Um, and there they weren't people as you know the the culture was changing around them and you know the the boomers were coming of age and not trusting anyone over 30 they're kind of dissatisfied culture with a lot of the what they viewed as the old stuffy things that they were rejecting from from previous generations right which is probably why sweet charity was a bomb ball posse's first film because it came out like what 79 um and it was very much like a, a modern traditional musical as opposed to something like Cabaret, which he would do later, which is a deconstruction of what a musical can be. But with those breaking downs of those norms and mores, you also have the breaking down of the production code, right? Which allowed for, I think, a more honest and realistic portrayal of human sexuality on screen. And this even like then comes into like Midnight Cowboy's reputation as being the only x-rated film to win best picture what's funny about that though as i read shooting midnight cowboy the was it ampa american motion picture associate ampa or whatever it is the who the ratings board um they originally gave it an r but the studio wanted it to be an x basically because the studio head i think it was was it columbia i can't remember the studio now was basically homophobic and midnight cowboy has those queer undertones and he had some like psychologist that he liked that basically like is if children see this it's like the frogs turning people gay then that cowboy will turn people gay so they needed an x rating to protect the children's where the rating boards was rating boards was like no this is just an r um but you did have the children yeah exactly um very mud flanders of the studio um but yeah but still like you had that breaking down and like the x rating wasn't yet the commercial kiss of death that we we think of it being now right so yeah there is there is like that direct correlation and even again i just watched the other day what was the the palma movie that actually had salt and like kidder in it sisters yes which again it's it's de palma doing his like quasi rear window thing again but you know with with those kind of body horror sort of like elements that like yeah it wouldn't you wouldn't have seen it in a major motion picture that was you know funded by studios 15 years earlier or even 10 years earlier right and like when we when we talk about new hollywood we're talking about kind of the starts of it and like the two films that everyone points to that came out in 67 are to invoke warren again bonnie and clyde and then the graduate as well which i'm actually reading mark harris's mike nickel book right now speaking of the graduate and it's yeah it's good i'm enjoying it maybe more on mark harris later but yeah so we're talking about roughly kind of 67 to like 79 80 and what what one of the main thesis of easy riders is is basically you get the big budget 80s and like blockbuster culture from Spielberg and Lucas who are part of this, you know, movement with their contemporaries, like your Scorsese's, like your Friedkin's, like your Bogdanovich's, your De Palma's and like, or of that, of that same class. And, you know, they're both friends and competing with each other. But once you have Jaws and Star Wars, the book has an interesting lens on, I think like, spielberg specifically and like arguing that like spielberg cared 
less about the art and the themes and all these things that are representative of new Hollywood. It was just like, I'm going to make a really good movie. Right. And thinking about like more technically and then that being able to the studios to reassert their kind of dominance or like, you know, a return of the system that existed before, but it was blockbuster tentpole filmmaking and then less and less of the kind of, I don't want to say character-driven dramas, but like the type of character-driven drama that you were seeing with with some of the other filmmakers. And there's this is like I think very indicative of the kind of the main thrust of the book. There's a Robert Altman quote from I think the book was written like '97-ish of Altman saying disparagingly about how there weren't any movies anymore generally that he liked or the type of movies that he made, and he like name and i can't remember right now i should have written down the quote but he name checks the three movies that were playing at the theater at the time and like i don't think his point is wrong about like there being shifts in you know the culture of you know filmmaking and and what studios are willing to fund but he ends up naming like three bangers of like movies that we don't not that we don't get blockbusters but like aren't sexless marvel movies um too yeah. so it's kind of funny yeah. how even then reading this like 25 years later about the state of cinema and how that that those trends have continued is is kind of interesting so i can totally see someone reading this book and being like kind of frustrated by it at times because it mm. it can feel like old men like yelling at clouds because like their time <laughs> has passed and and whatever but like i do think as someone who's like a fan of that period like just historically but then specifically within hollywood history it's really interesting and like you know talking about like 69 and like again you must remember this karina longer's podcast doesn't need my help to support it but no. like what what she talks about a lot in her charles manson series is like the ways in which you could have someone like charles manson living with Dennis Wilson and like the breaking down of those systems and like social hierarchies again, largely because of the party scene and like, you know, the drug culture and the sex culture and things like that time. And it's like, there's a lot of that among like, you know, cross 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 pollination, both (laughs) physically and intellectually among the, the creatives and like directors and like, you know, writers and stuff at the time. So if you're in the mood for that or that interests you, it's definitely worth a read. It's, you know, considered one of those kind of touchstones. And I know too, I can't remember the name of it now, but talking about things changing over time, Biskind also has a version of this book about the independent cinema movement, like late eighties, early nineties, which I haven't read. And I don't know if I want to, because I don't need to read all the, you know, Weinstein stuff in it uncritically with what we what we know now too right so maybe with more more distance but so i'm sure there's there's lots of moments like that in easy writers as well when i say it it looks at things kind of uncritically at times but it sounds like this book is because the book that i read does this too is talking about one of the moments where hollywood renegotiates what kind of movies it's willing to make or movies that it will be made because you mentioned you know, the the time when people stopped going to the theater, kind of up to when Spielberg and Lucas really broke through. But you just mentioned the other book that he wrote, which was, you know, around that time in the 90s, where there really was that renegotiation. On the one hand, 
as you said, you know, the independent culture, which is very much Weinstein, etc. But also that's when the big budget thing started to go sexless. And uh, we were just talking about it today, uh, you know, that this is the year of the big contraction on streaming. Like nobody's going to throw money at things anymore. So I think we're about to see another big renegotiation. What kind of stories can we tell? Is it all safe IP or, you know, what can we tell? And then when the big people don't do it anymore, that's when you start to have these movements like uh, New Hollywood. So, I mean, it sounds like something that this book talks about that you can connect to today pretty easily. Well, and like, I think too, like I've always kind of had, and we'll, we'll see where this goes, but it's like, if you think about the so-called golden age of Hollywood and the, and like, you know, that when the studio system was as, as its fullest and its most, its highest powers, the way they managed actors, like they were assets, like in sports and things like that. I think we're seeing that, but I think instead of actors, it's IP that's being managed like that. It's not like a, it's not a, you know, Judy Garland movie or like a Mickey Rooney movie. It's a Marvel movie. It's like a Captain America movie, right? It's like Chris Evans. Yeah. He stars in movies and he's been voted, you know, people make him sexiest man alive. However many times, at least once, but you're not going to see a Chris Evans movie. You're going to see a Captain America movie. And even something like in knives out, it's like, Oh, Captain America wears really cool sweaters in knives out. Well, I think there's also that identification between actors and IP. Like you just, like you literally just illustrated, like the idea that actors almost can't escape IP sometimes, which I think is what we see with a lot of Marvel actors like Chris Evans. Although I did like it when Tony Stark played Charlie Chaplin. I thought that was pretty cool. (laughs) So uh, a couple of other people that I know of read this book also for this month. Our producer, Ryan, read this book. (laughs) Hi, producer Ryan. Hi, producer Ryan. And he wrote... We we took away his mic. Yeah, (laughs) after, after the last episode. He wrote, I'm almost halfway through and I'm enjoying it immensely, not only for the information and good portion of which was new for me, but for the structure, the way that Biskind is telling these stories in an overlapping and often paired way adds to the flow of the reading and allows him to contrast various figures of the new Hollywood movement with each other and how each studio and filmmaker was navigating this movement in film history. No, I I, I mean... Yes, retweet, like, and yes. retweet. Um, no, I definitely would agree with that. And it's it's really, like, sorry, Lasbert, I'm going to talk about auteur theory. Um, <laughs> but, like, the, the, the that could be another barrier for folks, too, because it definitely takes that idea of these, like, auteurs, you know, and their lives mm-hmm. and how it influenced their art and and everything else. But, sorry, what was I going to say? I apologize to Lazi, and then I lost my train of thought. Um, yeah, that happens. <laughs> <laughs> but it, like when you're looking at it and like trying to like you know analyze like a oeuvre or the someone's like body of work, like some of these anecdotes and the stories kind of like really influence how you then reflect their subsequent work. It's also really interesting that I I finished this book in or read this book in the same time that we're talking about. Um, the Fablemans, which is like, you know, Spielberg's semi-autobiographical movie, right? About kind of his experiences growing up, co- co-written by Tony Kushner, who is married to Mark Harris. Um, second time we brought up I've Mark Harris on this podcast. Um, <laughs> Are they the real angels in America? <laughs> I'm not sorry. 
HBO miniseries as directed by Mike Nichols, who we have mentioned on this podcast I, before. I See? read I read both plays in uh, undergrad in college as part of a Cold War seminar. I think my fun. I think my favorite part is actually at the end of the, the second play when they have like not the joke, but like it's the joke about you know Israel being bad. But then also we refer that like you know the other character steps in to not get the blowback. That felt like a very a very liberal New York Jewish joke to me. I watched Angels America last year for the first time, the HBO one. Anyways, off topic, but oh, it's it's all it's all cross pollinated. It's all related. No, but it's like. So like when you're reading it, you're hearing about Spielberg's relationship with Amy Irving. And then, you know, I'm sitting there watching the Fablemans and having read that, I can't not think that like, wait, is the like a historic Shiksha girl, Shiksha girlfriend that you give yourself in high school that isn't, you know, created for the 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 semi-autobiographic part of the movie? Is that you responding to that relationship? Like, is that like, are you thinking about this? Is it conscious? Is it subconscious? So it it provides another interesting vector of analysis to kind of these these films, right? Elise, who has also read this book and who put together a list of the films mentioned in this book, I think they eventually ended up with 51 films on their list uh, based on things that were mentioned in this book. I'm going to put the link in the notes for this episode, but it's also available in that in our uh, Reading Challenge 2023 channel on our Discord server, which is perfect because I had not seen most of these films. So I'm excited to kind of dig into this list a little bit. They said, you're talking about a book already, but please note that I ripped through it and all these dudes are maniacs, <laughs> which I think is is also a, a fun review of this. I, I really enjoyed Elise's um, dispatches as they were reading this book because um, they knew I enjoyed it. So they text me about what they just read and then I'd respond to it. And like, yeah, the funniest like an unofficial thing. unofficial like, buddy read. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly, exactly. And like, I think too where... We're talking about things, you know, and with distance and, you know, way people remember or don't remember stories. One of the movies that the chapter focuses on is Apocalypse Now, the the Coppola movie. And folks might be familiar with the documentary of the making of Apocalypse that was made by uh, her name's. So Eleanor Neal is Francis Ford Coppola's wife, Sophia Coppola's mother. Again, talking about 90s independent cinema, Nepo Babies, it's all connected. Godfather 3 <laughs> actor, Sophia Coppola. <laughs> I should say Godfather Coda actor, Sophia Coppola. But no, so Eleanor Neal, Coppola's wife, filmed a like kind of behind-the-scenes documentary as Francis was was making apocalypse now called hearts of darkness um which is interesting i've watched it and like kind of speaks to some of those like you know mythic stories of things about francis nearly like killing himself making this movie but it's interesting when you read easy riders and the things that like she left out like the whole idea of him flying his mistress as his muse to like be with Behind, like as he makes apocalypse now in the philippines at different times during one of the like production spins and like you know the ways in which coppola literally is a maniac and like you know probably could have been diagnosed with something and like you know was on lithium and was diagnosed and like how that all influenced it and like even in her then telling the story behind the scenes and like and how challenging that shoot would have been her for her it's like it's not there too because it's like again about 
the myth of like you know the filmmakers and things like that so it it does do a bit of kind of deconstructions of that too and the apocalypse now hearts of darkness documentary version is just interesting because like it's his wife it's eleanor who's there as the filmmaker's spouse going through it but then also she's going through it too and off camera and it like again it's spoken to in the book they stayed married etc etc but it also like gives you a little insight into some of the other personalities um kind of behind the myths again there's a lot of marsha lucas in this book um a little bit about her relationship and deterioration of that with george as well i mean obviously you have like a little bit about the polyplat but bagdanovich partnership and like the ways in which you had these male auteur filmmakers who had these creative partnerships and as these men got more successful they weren't acknowledging the contributions of their partners and you know getting too big for their britches and things like Tale that so, yeah. this time yeah yeah <laughs> like like elise said they're all maniacs and I will say, I'm not trying to take anything away from any of these people, um, you know, our tour three, whatever. But every time I think about these things, I always think of the Glenn Close film, The Wife, which is like a film what if that haunted me. Like, so, because yeah, it's kind of like at what, at some point, like some of this work actually belongs to your spouse and like, are you really acknowledging who this work belongs to? Like, yeah, it's, it's all very interesting. All right, so it sounds like this is a high recommend from you for people to read. Yeah, no, I definitely would. I'm excited to read it. I'm adding it to my my list as well. All right, Sam, it's time we turn to you. Me? Yeah, what did Who you read Who hasn't said for anything this? at all on this episode? <laughs> what have you read for this month, and how was that experience? Again, I, I want to say that I don't want to be that person. But writing your own book is hard, okay? <laughs> I mean, everybody depicts writing a book. I mean, like we've all seen the Wonder Boys. Okay, <laughs> I've seen the Wonder Boys. Like, to be an author means you just, like, have millions of dollars and you can just sit around and write a book, right? Well, that's not life, people. Anyway, I read half, more than half, nay, of the book by Mark Harris, Five Came Back. A story of Hollywood and the Second World War, which was turned into a documentary on Netflix a while back. But basically, as you all know, or maybe you don't, I'm a big fan of Frank Capra and his muddled populist politics and how it reflects into films. I mean, it is what it is, people. But... I've always been interested because Frank Capra, one of the things he is very well known for outside of, you know, his great run of movies that started with it happened one night and then culminated with Mr. Smith goes to Washington is after the dud that was meet John Doe, which is my favorite. He made arsenic and old lace just to give his wife a bunch of money so he could go off and join the military to make propaganda films World War II, which are known as the Why We Fight series. So this book is about not just Frank Capra's contribution to the Second World War, but also John Ford, George Stevens, William Wyler, and John Huston. What if your best directors joined the military and made propaganda films? Suck it, Goebbels. <laughs> I mean, that's what it was. I mean, that was the whole point, right? What drew you to this book? 
Uh, well, like I said, I've been meaning to read it for a while. It's 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 the story of Frank Capra and other directors who are interesting. I do like how Frank Capra is the most overbearing of all the people in this book because, of course, he is. Um, <laughs> I, he, I mean, he, there's it could be Houston, but it well, Houston, Houston wasn't established yet. Oh, uh, okay. He yeah, was yeah, yeah. still, you know, he was still very much in his dad's shadow. He was well known at this point for being able to punch up or write scripts but as a director he was still trying to prove himself uh the same thing was said of george stevens you know john ford was already pretty reputationally secure william wyler was in capra's shadow in terms of the oscars this book actually talks about how william wyler finally won best picture for mrs miniver which is like a pro-British film that won the Oscar when he was in Britain and he was so embarrassed by the movie because he was like, I got so much shit about I like I am a I am a jerk American. But even the British people loved the movie. So I'm I'm actually really excited to see that one. But I mean that's what this book is, right? It is your standard typical exactly what you would expect of a book about film from a certain time period. It's it's all of the stories. It's the hot goss, right? I mean, we're talking about people like Capra and Weiler, so the goss is not as hot. <laughs> Although, I do want to say, John Ford, director of The Grapes of Wrath, was known as having a Young Men's Purity, Total Abstinence, and Snooker Pool Club. <laughs> and it's like, because dude was like the horniest of horn dogs. What's, what's really funny about this time period is like how purity culture it was because of the, the, um, the code and, you know, people being in charge of the studios, trying not to ruffle feathers and sell pictures. Meanwhile, John Ford just, going around, doing his thing with as many women as he can. Woo. I'm sure Ryan will have, have stuff to say about that I, when, when he when he produces this episode. So, I mean, I... I no, 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 no. guest star John Ford. The, <laughs> the two Johns, Ford and Houston, between them, probably drank all the alcohol and slept with all the women <laughs> in Hollywood. There was none left after that. Wait, Bogart was still alive. Well, so. I'll get to Bogart. If you just give me a few minutes, I will get there. I mean, this was, this, I mean, it really was interesting. It was interesting talking about, because the book is also about what is propaganda. And, you know, Talk one of the, tr- uh, well, that's, yes. Uh, well, now, hold on. You've just pushed one of Stop. Sam's buttons. Um, we're about to take a, I a don't break know that, from this episode. Here, here, no, no, no. Here's the thing. I don't know that Maverick functions as propaganda. I don't. Because, and I'll tell you why. One of the reasons, one of the things that makes propaganda at least effective propaganda is the enemy. There is no decipherable enemy in Maverick. There is an enemy, but we can't name them. This is something that is kind of of a part with a lot of the Bond movies, starting with Detente and then into the 90s. You take a Top Gun, you know, the original Top Gun, which is the example right up there with Rocky IV. 
Top Gun and Rocky Four are your best jingoistic propaganda movies ever. <laughs> really? That you could point to? Because the Soviets are enemy number one in both. But Top Gun Maverick is definitely something. You're right. I, 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 I don't disagree, but I think you can. And again, I don't want to. We don't. I don't want to do what I normally do on this podcast and make it go two and a half hours because <laughs> I hijack it. But I think in like the era, I mean, there's always, it's always an era of endless wars, but like specifically in yeah. kind of, you know, the, the post nine 11 war on terror kind of faceless enemy in the desert thing. Like I think, right. There, there could be a vector of like analysis there. Like, again, I don't, I don't disagree with you, but there's something there. And I mean, I got a Criterion collection, like our Criterion channel um, subscription for Christmas, which was probably one of like my favorite gifts ever. But I finally yeah. watched Battleship Potemkin, and uh, if we're talking about propaganda movies that are the best of all time, can't can't leave out Battleship Potemkin. It's an interesting discussion about you know with this this word, and and Harris deals with this in the book that you have studio chiefs, military filmmakers having this extended argument, if not with each other, then in general, in theory, with what is propaganda? What should it be? What is our role? So that's that's actually very much what the heart of the book is about. And, you know, one of the one of the big tricks that they they, you know, we can't watch a documentary today hardly without seeing a reenactment. Somebody like Capra was like, I don't know. Should we do those? The military's like, yes. Some of these directors are like, no. Should we reuse, like, okay, Triumph of the Will, terrible, but can we use their footage and then narrate over it and do reverse propaganda? Yes. Right? What does it mean when Ford goes to the Battle of Midway, nearly gets his ass killed, and he gets the first footage, actual war film, you know, good stuff, and then people see the film and they're like, "Uh, well, I mean, I thought I was going to see more than that. Did you miss the shot where a bomb went off so close to him he fell over and the camera went with him? Like, damn, what do you want, jackals? <laughs> I, I, you know, that's what the book really is trying to get at is this idea of like, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? You know, there's this battle of, and this is what kind of the early parts of the book are. We know we're going to get into this war. It's immoral not to, but it's going to happen anyway. Are we responsible in Hollywood for making happy, good time dancing films? Or should we get in the business of saying, hey, Nazis are evil? And then when we decide to do it, should we do it half-assedly or whole-assedly? So would you (laughs) say, I'm going to ask the same question that I asked of Matt, and it'll become very obvious why I'm asking this question when I talk about my book. Would you say this book is accessible to people who are maybe new to these types of films, who haven't seen a lot of like these propaganda films or are only somewhat familiar with maybe one or two of these directors, but not all of them. So I think that this is, okay, so non-academic trade nonfiction has to do something very specific to be effective. You cannot get too academic. So one thing that I notice in a lot of academic writing in books is they aren't meant to be read cover to cover, which is, you know, whatever. That's a lot of collections and anthologies and stuff like that. But when you have a single authored book, like the one I'm writing, my attempt is to write it as a book you could read. It is academic. It's not trade nonfiction. 
but an academic should be able to read it, glean what they would from it, but it should be an experience you can read. I really believe in that. I think that's, you know, my quote unquote wicked sense of humor. <laughs> I was that 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 that's a direct quote somebody else wrote about me. Anyway, my my shining example of this is like most single author books in academia always feature like previously published writing from another project and they shoehorn it into what they're writing because writing a whole book is hard. Um, and so you'll be reading this book and it'll all make sense. And then there'll be this weird chapter on photography that barely relates to the project. And it's like, what the hell, man? What are you doing? But with trade nonfiction writing, you have to keep people interested. You have to assume, one, they have an interest level in the topic, but they probably don't know a lot about it. So it's your job to inform them, but keep them entertained. As an example, is your book starting to get bogged down in historical details? Well, friend, what if I told you that one of Frank Capra's many projects for films was one called Hey Soldier that he wanted to make as a series of cartoons. And he invented a character called Private Snafu, (laughs) who was a fuck-up of a character. (laughs) And what if I told you, because if it was animated, he decided, I want it to be animated. He wanted to find a hot animation person who could draw. What if I told you that man was Theodore S. Geisel? Wow. And what if I told you that to get it done, they had to shop it to a studio and Disney said, we'll do it, but we'll only do it if we have the rights to it. And so that wasn't going to work. So what if I told you they went to Warner Brothers and hooked up with a young and hungry person animator by the name of Chuck Jones? (laughs) who was working on a character that he thought would be great for Private Snafu. So what if I told you that Private Snafu was Elmer Fudd and that he was voiced by Mel Blanc? (laughs) That is, my friend, a super team. Right? Like, that's the thing. You write a book and you have to... You put the vegetables in it, but people came wanting the vegetables, but you still give them a little razzle-dazzle. What if I told you that in the middle of the book, when things are starting to get real over there in, in, uh, in Italy, John Houston is like getting bombed out and is miserable, project is failing. Who should happen to show up? Humphrey Pogart. And so so they go for a night of blackout drinking. (laughs) Sounds like them. With 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 uh, (laughs) with Humphrey Bogart and his then wife Mayo Mathot, who was uh, a bit of a meanie, a real alcoholic. Apparently, Humphrey Bogart's nickname for his wife was (laughs) his nickname for his wife was Sluggy. Man, I love Humphrey. You know, I just got to say, I got to say, Humphrey Bogart married an alcoholic, abusive woman, tolerated her, divorced her, 
and then married the hottest younger person around. I admire that life trajectory. And you don't see any parallels with your own life. Did I just compare you? (laughs) Did you just compare yourself to to Humphrey Bogart? Well, I compared you to Lord Bacall, (laughs) jackass. Take Take it. I'll take that compliment. Take it. You know how to whistle, don't you? Put <laughs> your lips together and blow, God damn it. Um, and, and to bring it all together, anytime I hear about, you know, someone like someone like Houston in a war zone, that brings me back to da 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 Ernest Hemingway and who wrote To Have or Have Not, which stars Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Sam. I will thank <laughs> you to leave Ernest Hemingway out of this. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that I really I I the Capra stuff is is interesting. You hate having a hero deconstructed. I've read his autobiography name above the title. I want to believe his own hype, and of course you shouldn't. But I really enjoyed reading about William Wyler, who I've seen a fair few of his films, but I need to go back and watch more. Uh in fact, one of my favorite quote unquote classic Hollywood films is The Best Years of Our Lives which is the 1946 melodrama about the war that William Wyler makes once he comes back. But for now, I want to tell you about one other thing that Harris writes about that I really enjoy, is William Wyler wanted to be part of it, right? As somebody who was sending as much money as he could to get as many of his people out of Europe as possible, he really wanted to take part in this war against people who were trying to exterminate his people. You know, there's, there's, there's real skin in this game. And he was constantly frustrated about not being able to get as close to the war as he wanted, but he finally agitated the right people and got involved with the bomber, the bomber squadron that involved the Southern bell, which is something You can't grow up in the South like I did without knowing what the Southern Bell is, but it was the name of a bomber. And he actually went up in the bombers and started filming. And my favorite story about this is that they just, they got used to this weird, large dude just walking around with a camera, shouting at people like, son of a bitch, like walking around and all this stuff. And it was great. It was so great reading about that. And there's in in these bombers there's a little a little bubble that you can kind of like open up into and like hang out of the plane so you can like 360 and shoot people except he did that with the camera and they're like what are you doing are you insane <laughs> he's like anything for the shot and they're like okay okay crazy he writes down on the bomb doctor strange love style <laughs> i just william wyler's in your bomber it's great i you know, I'm a little disappointed I didn't read about the madcap days of Hollywood like, you know, you guys did, Matt, but I love my guys. These are my guys. I got to tell you. So you would recommend this book then? I mean, the 60% of it I've read. Oh, yeah, sure. sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, unless it ends terribly, <laughs> I, I guess. Okay, well, here's the thing. So I know that I knew that Elise had made the um, the letterbox list for uh for the other book i i'm going to make a list for this one because it covers a lot of things that i've wanted to see for a while a lot of a lot of ford a lot of houston a lot of weiler 
you know, that I've wanted to see. So I'm interested in that. I think that'll be fun. So sure, why not? So Tessa, I heard, <laughs> puns, that you read a book about music in the movies. I did. I read Hollywood Harmony Musical Wonder and the Sound of Cinema by Frank Lehman, who is an assistant professor of music at Tufts University. That's you- right. I read an academic yeah. book. You remember all that stuff <laughs> that I said earlier about academic books? Nerd. Yeah, I know. I was I wanted to get really nerdy with this one. And part of it was because I was really actually inspired by our 11 Days of Star Wars series because we kept talking about John Williams' score and the way that that really impacts what happens on the screen and the way we interpret what happens on the screen and the way we feel about what happens on the screen. And I was like, you know what? This seems like a good opportunity to really dig into soundtracks and film music in a way that I haven't been able to, be- to before. I love soundtracks. I love like listening to film music and, you know, thinking about it and thinking about how it affects things that I see, but I don't really have a great theoretical or uh, a theoretical understanding or a good vocabulary for it. So I don't have a lot of like technical language for it. So I was like, all right, I am going to like actually try to understand some things and learn some stuff about this. And how did that go? Well, so I will say this is why I was asking about the accessibility of it. This is obviously not a book that's really accessible to someone who's just like casually interested in this subject. In fact, I don't know, as I was kind of looking at different options for this, I was drawn more to the academic stuff because I know how to read an academic text. And I thought that some of the concepts that he was looking at sounded very interesting, but I couldn't find a lot of like, or like trade books about this i mean i'd be very curious if anyone listening would know of a book that's like more in that trade category um because i would love to read it but um this is not for a casual reader it's very academic um it is a bit out of my field i've done film theory but i have never done music theory i've played music um but i don't really know a lot about like the academic side of it so i struggled a bit with this but in a really good way like it forced me to kind of look up a lot of musical concepts, um, a lot of vocabulary that I wasn't necessarily familiar with, but the ideas themselves are pretty accessible. And I think that's because um, Lehman, and he says this at the beginning of the book, is really dedicated to this idea of interdisciplinarity, of, you know, taking what he knows about music theory and applying it to film, but introducing it to people who are maybe more familiar with film theory than they are with music theory. So if you're someone who has a background in film theory or like has some kind of, you know, understanding of it or you've studied a lot of movies and stuff this is something that will probably make sense to you if you're willing to do a little bit of work on it he explains his theoretical frameworks really well i think the second chapter he actually just lays out like this is what this theory is that i'm going to be working with and here's how it works and here's what all these terms mean and so um i think that that makes it a little bit more accessible than it otherwise would have been It's hard for me to say that confidently, though, because I also have a lot of experience reading academic texts. And so it's very easy for me to be like, I know where all the important stuff is um, because they all eventually look alike. But um, I think that, again, if you are somebody who already kind of knows about some of these things, this wouldn't necessarily be the most difficult read. Does the book bring up the the Diasire and how many films use that? No, because it's more interested in affect. Oh, okay. It's more, it's less interested in like how sound happens or how music happens uh, technically and more interested in what music yeah. does. Uh, okay. Um, 
Oh. So yeah, it, he's very much into the like answering the question, how does music steer our understanding of what's happening on the screen? What kinds of emotions does it elicit in the audience? What are the traditions of film music, which I found very interesting, actually, because I listened to a lot of classical music growing up. I still listen to a lot of classical music. And some of the ideas that he had about film music, he basically says that film music has a is actually in a different tradition than most other music that's being produced like in the 20th century, even like classical music, because it's relying on older ideas of like romanticism and the types of scoring and the types of techniques that are deliberately trying to make you feel this sense of wonderment, which is a word that he uses quite a bit in this in this text. So like eliciting the feeling of wonder is very much like a romantic thought, right? It's very much about the sublime. It's about feeling awe. It's about feeling like these like huge emotions, right? Um, And so he's very interested in looking at the different musical techniques that actually go into creating that type of music. He does talk about a lot of different scores, and I also really appreciated that he had a section on studio logo music, which I wasn't really expecting, but he was talking especially about, like, James Horner's um, contribution to that and, like, how it's supposed to set you up for, like, the film. Like, the idea is that it could go in front of any film and make sense, but it's also supposed to, like, give you this sort of emotional cue for what you're about to see, which I thought uh, was really cool. I feel like that that has backfired with you, though, because every time you hear the former I know. <laughs> 20th Century Fox <laughs> full fanfare, you are expecting, you're like... I'm you're like, like ready a, for a long time ago in a galaxy yeah, far, far like away. You are like behaviorally conditioned to yeah. expect blue text and to get blown I, away. I also, you John know Williams. this, I start humming along to it, too. It's really bad. I but he one of the main scores he does focus on though is Howard Shore's Lord of the Rings soundtrack. That's actually the front image of the book is uh, Gandalf the White and his first appearance in the Two Towers, and I love that soundtrack. I mean, I've I've had I had all three of those on discs like as soon as the movies came out. Um, they're very very good. But he uses those soundtracks to talk very specifically about how Howard Shore is trying to do both communication about what's happening on screen, but also communication about the series as a whole throughout the soundtrack. Um, And he uses a lot of different critical apparatus. I'm not going to really get into them because that would be a little bit too like abstract. Oh, oh, surely you can name one. So like, a lot of this is about how like musical structure music structures film and about how like what's the meaning of music and how pitch especially has a lot to do with film and how it's like expressive um but he specifically focuses on one specific pan triadic chromaticism which he says Sounds like a weird sex position it does kind it of it really does but like he says basically and again i'm not going to go into like all the music technical stuff of it but he basically says that the hollywood sound like when we say it sounds like film music it's because of this very specific like idiom that reoccurs in music like this series of um, chromatic notes that go together even if you're filtering them through other other pitch and other tone he likes to close read things there are sections of this book that are just like bars of music that he like close reads and analyzes so if you don't read music that might be a little bit difficult for you i occasionally was like i do not know what you're talking about i'm gonna have to look up what this word means but i usually could figure it out and so i do feel like wait when you don't know what a word means you don't just skip over it no as i tell my students google is free like and it's very easy to use and your students listen to you 
No, they okay. never do. Right. Um, okay. They're like, what's Google? <laughs> you mean you can just like look stuff up and not like ask your teacher for everything? Um, Weird. So, yeah. So it is it's, nice. They think I know everything, though. I guess. I mean, um, if you look at it that way, it's uh, the positive interpretation of that is that they think you know everything. The negative interpretation of that is that they're lazy. Um. Anyway, both are correct. Both are probably correct. So, like again, like I felt like I was kind of playing in somebody else's pond when I was reading this book, but I had enough knowledge that it was very, it was still very engaging for me, and I still feel like I learned a lot. Again, I don't think I absorbed probably nearly as much as I would have if I had like more of a background in musical theory. But I think that I understand a little bit more about what he means in terms of musical meaning, what he means in terms of how uh, different idioms of music kind of translate to film. And also how what I thought was most interesting was the way in which uh, we've been trained by film to expect certain um, music. So it works both ways. It's not just that the film informs our emotions about what's happening. It's that our emotions read into what's happening in the music um, now because we've heard those types of iterations over and over again in film. So like when we hear John Williams score, um, we think about early Hollywood, right? And epics and so on. And we're just like, oh, that's what's happening here. Even if we're not like consciously um, thinking about that. So really good book. Again, probably not for beginners. Probably was even a little bit too advanced for me in some places, but I really enjoyed it. Um, And I like tackling challenging things occasionally. Probably won't do it again for a while, but this was definitely something that was worthwhile um, for me. And speaking of classic fanfare and historical epics, that brings us back to Ben-Hur and William Wyler and my previous appearance during the 11 Days of Star Wars and telling you about the pod race reminding me of the chariot sequences in Ben-Hur. Perfect. Now it's all that. connected. Sorry, now folks, I have no racing. chill. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it is, everything is connected. And I love, that's why we love having you on is because I feel like you, you really are able to make those connections very, very well. Before we end today's episode we have to update our uh, romance sub challenge so sam i was going to ask you first how are you doing on our 10 extra <laughs> books of romance <laughs> not good not great not okay. great not great bob speaking of another podcast I, that okay Matt first does. of all <laughs> first of all i have a whole month after this one i am i am the comeback kid just March, friends. The Romance Sub Challenge only runs from January to March, oh, okay. as previously announced, because the Hugo Award nominations drop uh. in April. But here's the thing. The Romance Sub Challenge tasks aren't going away till the end of 2023. So my point to you is I have a whole month, and then I have eight more after that. <laughs> It's actually nine because it's a bit anyway. The point is, I do intend on finishing. It's not how you start, it's how you finish, people. So, I you're gonna talk about it in a minute. I started Soulless by Gail Carringer, didn't get very far. What I did get very far on because I read it all in one sitting, all in once, did not stop, was a book called The Bodyguard by Catherine Center. It is a fake dating book. What if, what if a professional bodyguard takes an assignment with a Henry Cavill-like action superstar and sparks fly? Oh, that's cute. It is cute. I like that. 
I, I saw that in the notes and I thought that it was going to be about Kevin Costner. So that's, that sounds interesting. No, <laughs> no, no, no. Also, cue dramatic music. I started reading It Ends With Us by your friend, Nigel's friend and my friend, Colleen Hoover. Nigel ask, is going to be like, sacrilege. Ask me why. Why? Why are you reading this? Because Colleen Hoover's book, It Ends With Us, has been banned from my local school district. Banned. Not challenged. Banned. It's gone. It's been censored. So I'm going to read it. Well, I guess at that point you'd kind of have to, even though she's not a great person. Because I'm publishing a piece next month in March about the censorship battle that has happened in the town in which you and I live. And I'm ready to spit fire. Yep. That I have to do it on behalf of Colleen Hoover hurts me. <laughs> but to quote Beyonce, you won't break my soul. Not True. not not the censors or Colleen Hoover. <laughs> None of you. Well, as you mentioned, I am currently in a buddy read with you, um, reading Soulless by Gail Carringer. I finished Soulless. not a good buddy. Yeah, I finished Soulless. <laughs> I have left you notes that you will find as you are reading it. Soulless was my pick for, uh, I think it was my paranormal fantasy pick. But basically, it is a book that takes place in like a alternate Victorian London where it's kind of a steampunk London, but there's also supernatural creatures are like out. So it's kind of like True Blood, but in London, in Victoria. Kind of a it sounds like. Yeah. And so uh, it is about a spinster who does not have a soul. That is her her. Um, I love that spinster means like a 27 Yeah, she's like 26. But like she she is soulless. She is the, the titular character, which means that she is unaffected by uh, the magic of supernatural creatures. And so when, you know, if they come in con- physical contact with her, their power basically disappears. And she um, is investigating a series of disappearances and attacks um, that are kind of ravaging the supernatural community in london and of course she is joined by a hunk of a werewolf and do grumpy they fall jacob. in love maybe grumpy jacob <laughs> no much <laughs> hunkier than jacob so that is solace by gail carringer i liked it it was silly so if you're not like the person who likes silly romances i mean there are some dark moments in it for sure it does have to deal with some dark subject matter but like the interactions between the two of them are very like romantic comedy um very Lots of lots of like unexpected physical contact and like, um, you know, things like that happening in that book. So if you enjoy that, it's a good read. I enjoyed it. It might not be for everybody, though. The one that I would definitely recommend um, wholeheartedly, though, was the one I also read within a day, The Lotus Palace by Jeannie Lin. I, as I have mentioned before, am trying very hard to make at least 50 percent of the things that I read this year by people of color. And I pick this one for the the prompt in the romance that was uh, not Regency, historical fi- romance that was not Regency. Um, so I picked The Lotus Palace, um, which takes place um, during the Tang Dynasty in China. It is a murder mystery um, that is about uh, a body is basically found in the 
kind of pleasure quarter of of the the city and it is being investigated by a former sex worker and an aristocrat who may eventually fall in love and i had never read a romance novel that centered sex workers in this way like most of the characters are either former or current sex workers it's very well done despite it being like in a historical context like they do talk about some of the stigma around it but they never but the book never really um stigmatizes it itself and a lot of these characters are struggling with issues like you know what is the difference between your sex work and your romantic life and you know all of these types of things and it it was so well done very very well written i liked the characters a lot this is the first in a series. I should mention Solus is the first in a series about those two characters. This is the first in a series, but each book has an HEA for every couple. So like every book is about a different couple that's sort of tangentially related to each other in this um, one specific geographic location, which is honestly one of my favorite ways of doing historical romance. So I'm really looking forward to reading the rest of these books um, when I get the opportunity. So definitely recommend The Lotus Palace. Um, I am also about to start a buddy read of the novella by Alyssa Cole, Once Ghosted, Twice Shy, with Elise. So that'll be a very short read, but I'm very excited to read that with Elise. Have you been reading any romance lately, Matt? Or has it all been film? It's mostly been the like film history biography sort of vein right now. Absolutely. I am. I uh, when I had COVID last fall, I watched the first season on um, AMC Plus of the new Interview with the Vampire, and so I'm theoretically still reading that book. So I do have a kind of supernatural romance on the side, but I haven't picked it up in a minute. So I should go back to it. So romantic, so vampire. Hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like we're doing okay with our reading challenges. Everybody read some good books this this month. It sounds like um, getting some traction on our romance challenge. But next time we're returning to the movies again. Um, it's our annual Academy Awards episode with Jack and Megan. I say that like we've done it every year. This is the second year <laughs> we've done it. Yeah, it already feels like an institution. Jack and Megan are, of course, our Oscars correspondents. Um, I'm so excited to talk about this year's batch of films with them. It's going to be great. Where can people find us? Matt, where can people find you online and in their headphones? Yeah, so you can find me online in Twitter and Letterboxd at, at MattyHugh, M-A-T-T-Y-H-U-G-H. I also currently have the pod race with the already aforementioned Elise, which is a Star Trek Deep Space Nine rewatch podcast. And at some point, it's still great, Bob, my Mad Men rewatch podcast with Melissa, other friend of the pod mentioned earlier today, should be coming back once I make a schedule there. I think she's actually waiting for me. So I should do that. Also, you can see for the first time words that, that producer Ryan let me publish on Movie John for their romance week about The Graduate, because I cannot escape New Hollywood, Scott Pilgrim. And Chivalric Love, Courtly Love, and me. I loved that article. I thought all of your connections were really, really interesting. And I recommend that everybody go read it. Sam, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9. And on Letterboxd and Storygraph at Melody Valentine. You, You know, broken record time. You can find more from, I guess, all three of us and our producer, Ryan, 
on moviejohn.com. That's moviejawn.com. You can find me on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Storygraph at The Buy Paradox. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Ogg's Book Club, where my friend Nigel and I, the another aforementioned person on this podcast, <laughs> have been reading through all of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. You can find that on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. We'd like to know your thoughts on any of the books we've talked about today or what you've been reading. Be sure to join Momble's 2023 reading challenge on Storygraph if you haven't already. You can find us on Twitter at Monkey Backlog. You can find the link to our Discord community in the show notes. And you can also email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Please take a moment to rate or review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back. Yay! Yay. <laughs>